This is Mark Steiner, and welcome today to a very special presentation of The Mark Steiner Show. I don't have very many radio heroes, other than one man, who I had the wonderful opportunity to interview over a 10-year period before he passed away. And that man was Studs Terkel. He was on WFMT in Chicago for 45 years with a daily show of music, ideas, and incredible interviews. He was a fighter for workers' rights, for justice, for the First Amendment, and most notably to me, against racism and white supremacy. He went south to stand with Martin Luther King, who he interviewed many, many times. He talks about how he learned about his own racism from people like Big Bill Brunzi and Mahalia Jackson. When the House Un-American Activities Committee came after him in the 1950s, he stood up to them and didn't stop. He defied them. He brought people like Paul Robeson on his show. They had him banned from radio for years, but he came roaring back. Studs Terkel was an oral historian. He turned that genre into a genre of his own. He called it guerrilla journalism and was the person who turned oral histories into a popular medium. He wrote 18 books. Some of them grabbed me as a younger man, like Hard Times, the oral history of the Depression that he wrote back in 1970. Then in 1974, he wrote the book Working. People talk about what they do all day and how they feel about what they do. And one that came out just as I was going on the airwaves 24 years ago in 1992, Race, How Blacks and Whites Think and Feel About the American Obsession. So in 1995, when I heard Studs was coming to town and that he would let me interview him, I jumped at the chance. We sat down to talk about his book that had just come out, Coming of Age, the story of our century by those who lived it. Then he returned in 2000 with his book, The Spectator, talk about movies and plays with those who make them. And then in 2005, just a few years before his passing, he wrote, And They All Sang, The Adventures of an Eclectic Disc Jockey. He was 83 when he first came on my program. And over the next 10 years, I interviewed him and stayed in touch with him. So here is a compilation of those three interviews. We start with his views on race and the working class in America. And then in the second half of the program, we explore theater, film, music, and culture. So now, sit back and enjoy my conversations with the amazing Studs Terkel. Let's just start with this book and just wander around the map here. But before we start with the book, let me just tell you the little story I told you at the head of the show when I talked to your publisher, Lisa Bernstein, the woman who was doing the PR for this tour. And uh, I talked to her about it. They started saying you couldn't make it because, you know, you had to be in D.C. and you had to fly to Chicago. And I said, well, look, I, you just got to do this because I, I have to talk to Studs Terkel. <laughs> I got to do this. And uh, I told the story about Peggy Terry. And I, that's why I wanted to open the show. You wrote in your book, it wasn't working. Was, which book was she in? Well, she was in Hard Times. Hard Times. That first one, The Depression. Peggy Terry, uh, Appalachian, o Ozarkian woman, came from western Kentucky to Chicago. There was a big migration of mountain people, southern whites, as well as, of course, southern blacks to Chicago. Of course, that was a city called heaven to many. That, as far as work is concerned, the stockyards, steel mills. And Peggy was of this group of mountain white people who were felt outside the city as much as black people did. When she'd meet a black person, very often, because you, you worked in Chicago for a short time, mm -hmm. you know, when a southern white who's alone 
and unhampered by the bigotries that may be imposed upon him and that he takes unto himself, meets a black person. They come from a small town somewhere in the south there in Chicago. They speak of home. Home is where they're from. Right. They find that common. But Peggy is the one who came, who organized the Appalachian Southern white people of Chicago. And she has a way of talking that's a natural eloquence. She was mm -hmm. almost a key to all of my books. Really? In the natural element, in natural way people talk, ordinary people, there is a poetry, if you dig deeply enough. And she'd speak in that manner. And so when she says, I was ashamed of being poor for a long time until I read Grapes of Wrath, she said, she had an old thumbed paperback. Mm -hmm. Very graciously, she identified herself immediately with Ma Jode. And why shouldn't she? She was Ma Jode to me when I knew her in the 60s. And I was visiting her uh, a number of times. There was a picture, a family album photo, you know, those old daguerreotype sort of. And there was her mother, who was a dead ringer for Jane Darwell, who played Ma Jode. Peggy had that all-encompassing <laughs> quality, and it's yeah. her relationship to black people, African-American right. people, that was a key, because she was raised, as many Southern whites were, you know, uh, taught to be anti the other because they competed for jobs. Remember what Martin Luther King said from the back of that truck in, in, uh, in Montgomery at the end of the Selma Montgomery March? Mm -hmm. He said the poor white was fed Jim Crow instead of bread. Or Peggy, of course, saw bread as the connecting link. In any event, uh, she, her manner of speech and talking and how she organized communities made her a key figure in all, pretty much all the writings I've done. Or Interesting. So she was meant a great deal to you as well. It wasn't just the pieces oh, you wrote about her, the conversation no, you had with her in the book. No, she herself, her own growth, talking about how she met Emma Tiller, an old, old African-American woman, and how a guy she was married to, one of the guys she was married to, was, remember, was helping Emma Tiller off with her galoshes when she'd come to visit on this rainy, snowy day. Peggy had never seen in her life a white guy helping an African-American woman off with her galoshes. <laughs> and she couldn't get over that. First, she was offended because it was, it was like a splash of cold water. And then she knew Emma. And then she knew other things. And then she's down working as a supermarket checkout clerk in Montgomery, Alabama. Mm -hmm. And she sees this guy... Martin Luther King, Dr. King. She, I'll tell you about her meeting with Dr. King at a certain, at a push rally where she just broke the place up. And so she says she saw these three whites jump on him. And then she thought, this is horrendous, the unfairness. Then she associated everything, working in the fields. She did all kinds of work, working in the fields with, with poor African-Americans and Chicanos and Asiatics. And so Peggy grew and grew and grew. And so one day she's talking. She gets arrested, of course, in many civil rights rallies and anti-war rallies. And she's in prison. And she comes out in jail. And she comes out to talk to Operation Push, which is the African-American gathering place in Chicago. She's talking to this primarily black audience. Mm -hmm. And she's saying, well, why did you go to jail? Yeah, why do you like... Martin Luther King, where else but in jail, she said. Here I were me, poor white trash. I'm going, well, I've, suddenly I'm greeted by a man who won the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> well, where else can you get that but in jail? <laughs> and of course the house, you can imagine what happened to the black audience. They just stomped and cheered and sang. Absolutely. And they just almost lifted Peggy on their shoulders. You know. One of the things I remember about Peggy Terry um, 
and I don't want to get too esoteric here, so people we lose our people in this conversation. But mm -hmm. one of the things I remember is that her son Doug Youngblood uh, and I became good friends. And uh, Doug, while his mother was in the civil rights, he was in jail for part of that time. He was a member of the Klan, and then came out of jail after spending six years in the Alabama prison. I remember, and he. Um, then went on to become a kind of a radical thinker and, a, and an organizer in his community and making alliances in the, with the black community. And he and I drove through the South during the Martin Luther, Luther King's Poor People's Campaign to organize poor white communities mm. to join in mm. in the tent city, we were, the resurrection city we were building in Washington. And I'll never forget that because what that opened my eyes to was having been a civil rights worker in the early 60s, my first reaction to seeing um, poor whites or seeing um, white folks in the South or Appalachia was a racist. They're my enemy. They're going to come get me. And then running with Doug through the South, organizing these communities, the whole world opened to me, a world that I, because of the nature of race in America, was shut off from me. And uh, it was an eye-opener. I mean, it, and it's... it's uh, you said that Doug had been a member of the Klan. Right. Now, see, that raises something. There's a guy in one of the books, he's been several with C.P. Ellis, Claiborne P. Ellis, who once upon a time was the grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan of Durham, North Carolina. C.P. Ellis today is one of the most remarkable people. His story is almost biblical. It's scriptural. It's about revelation and transcendence and redemption. Because he, a poor white, was rising in the Klan, or oh, he believed all his life that. His father, whom he loved, was a Klansman. Now, they had a miserable, rotten life, and the enemy, the one who's responsible, they've been told, is this black guy. And he believes in one day he joins the Klan, and he says, what an experience. Here's the point. that This deals with perversity, and eventually truth emerges mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that changes his whole life. But the day he's to be initiated in the Klan, he's a poor white, thinks nothing of himself. Black's the enemy. He's walking down the aisle. 400 people. He's got the white hood on. He's got the white robe. He's initiated. Illuminated cross up ahead. He's all happening to me. I am somebody at this moment. Now, what does that remind you of the phrase, I am somebody? Right, right. Jesse Jackson right. talking to Push, but for the opposite reasons, for perverse reasons. And then his development has bit by bit, the guys call him up, the big shots of town, because he broke up civil rights rallies. And the next day, he's walking down the street, they cross to the other side. And that's when he starts thinking, wait a minute. They're ashamed of Am I being used? And then he sees a poor old black guy going down the street. Is that the guy keeping me down? Mm -hmm. He and I look the same. We got the same raggedy clothes. <laughs> and he starts thinking, and bit by bit. And then one day he meets Ann Atwater, his enemy. She is the African-American woman working with, who led the civil rights marches, picketing these stores in Durham to get clerks, black clerks, to work there. Mm -hmm. And they hate each other. They can't stand. But one day, during Jimmy Carter's administration, some doe comes to Durham to the schools. And the guy, it's a very interesting African-American guy, invites everybody to attend this, because they're, they're all mothers and fathers, right. to attend. He invites NAACP, the White Citizens Council. He invites uh, SNCC. He invites <laughs> the Klan. And it's the craziest meeting ever. And uh, the Klansmen tell uh, uh, old CP, Claiborne Ellis, you're not going to go to that with them. 
I sure am. I got a kid going to school. I don't want them to have all the money. It's what you call hierarchy of values, you see. What's more important? His kid having someone that profit from it at school. So they go to the—there's a meeting. There's a fight. They call each other's names. Finally, somebody says, we got to continue this because we haven't resolved anything. I nominate Ann Atwater as chairman of this continuing committee. And then this black guy says, and I nominate— a guy I think is a very honest man, C.P. Ellis as co-chairperson Whoa. Co-cha- with Ann Atwater. And, and then a C.P. tells me the story. What's this guy trying to do to me? Wait a minute. <laughs> is he turning me upside down here? What's this? And he joins. He says, okay. He says to Ann Atwater, they don't like each other. We don't, but we got something in common. He's right. got a kid, so we'll work. And they work. And one day Ann comes in. She's crying. Now he calls her Ann. And she calls him Claiborne. And then one day, she comes in crying. Her little girl was humiliated by the kids at school, saying her mother's going around with a Klansman. And he starts crying. It happened my boy today, the white right. kids in town. Same teaching. thing happened to him Yeah, because side. His, uh, his, uh, her, his father's going around with a black agitator. Next thing you know, they're in the same boat. They're clinging to each other. And meantime, he's starting to sob as you're telling me the story. It's almost revelation in church, you know. And it builds up. <laughs> and finally, they decide to work together. And they are, and he's a janitor at Duke University. The Klansman is, is a janitor. Yeah, right. And there's a janitor's union, custodial workers' union. It's eighty percent black women, and he's great in signing up people. And one day he says, "They know him now. He's going to run for full-time business manager against a black guy." He says, "I know I've got a chance because it's eighty percent black." Right. And he so he speaks his speech. He says, "Look at me." You know who I was. You know who I am. You know who I was because the company sent out the leaflets with me in white robes. You know, they said, we don't want to hear anymore. We don't want to hear anymore. Now sit down. And he thinks, guess what? They elected me four to one. <laughs> he was elected four, and that's when he starts crying, of course. <laughs> These women, you don't know. And they're like, Martin, they're like Peggy Terry to him, right. you see. And so today he's one of the top organizers. He's looking for a young African-American kid to succeed him. Really? In the work. He's in North Carolina still? Oh, yeah, he's in Durham. So I do believe nobody is beyond... Oh, I'm, saying, oh, I'm not saying everybody, but I'm, right. I think a lot of people get deep, deep down can be reached if only there's some way of getting at them. David in Baltimore, you're on the air. Uh, hello. Hi, David. Mark and, uh, and Studs. Yesterday, Mr. Turkle, I heard you in uh, uh, broadcasting from Washington and it sounded like my uh, my own voice echoing inside my head because you made the comment that the first thing that Ronald Reagan did when he was in office was to bust a union mm. in your comments about the status of, uh, of, of union life in this country. And, um, <clears throat> and we seem to, to forget where all that uh, union struggle came from, and that was the context in which you made your comment. Uh, it occurs to me that we've forgotten a number of other things, too. Uh, one of them is uh, just sort of what you're supposed to do in the public realm. Uh, recently, I was at uh, Arlington National Cemetery, and when they played taps, most of the men there who were under 40 uh, didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. They had no idea that they should take off their cap or where they should put their hands or anything else. If you would, I'd like your comments on, on the, uh, the connection between uh, the decline of the unions and the, uh, the lack of any uh, national commitment by international corporations. 
and uh, the uh, demise of those sort of cultural uh, verities. You're hitting, of course, something very interesting. And that story about taps, I didn't realize. That's, it was I realize how far this can spread now. You're talking about an old-time American ritual that is beyond politics, taps for those mm -hmm. soldiers died in battle. And the kids didn't even know that. See, what happens is first you do not know what happened as far as those up against it are concerned, labor battles, and eventually you get not to know any aspect of the country. Now, you're talking about labor and something not knowing, it's something I call a national Alzheimer's disease. <laughs> it's true. It was That's a, right. There is no yesterday. Now, how do the kids, I may have, I'll repeat this, you may have heard this, so forgive me if I say it again, but Baltimoreans haven't heard it. It's a story, I'm waiting for a bus. This is a few days before Labor Day, a couple of years ago, and there's upscale young couple are standing. I can't get in a conversation with them. And I, <laughs> although, although we've been waiting for the bus for a year, each day, same time, and one has, he has, of course, has a Wall Street Journal folded neatly under his arm. She looks, she's a beauty, by the way. She has uh, a latest issue of Vanity Fair, of course, under her arm. <laughs> and I say, you know, Labor Day coming up, and he won't talk, so I talk to myself. You know? <laughs> I find the audience very appreciative. <laughs> and so I'm saying, Labor Day, and so he won't. And I say, you know, that's when people used to march down Michigan Avenue, Chicago, with banners, and, and they'd sing songs and make speeches. And he looks at me and says, we, we, speaks for both. He says, we loathe unions. In the manner of an old coward talking. Mm -hmm. I see, so I got me a pigeon here. <laughs> the car is late in coming. The, the, bus, the bus is late in coming. So I walk toward him like the ancient mariner with the glittering eye. <laughs> and I say, how many hours a day do you work? This is connected with the questioner's question. How many hours a day do you work? He says, eight. And I say, how come you don't work 18 hours a day? You're great great-grandparents did. You know why you work eight? Now I'm on a soapbox. He, he, I got him pinned against the mailbox now. He can't get away. And he, and he says, uh, so I say, you know why you work eight and not 18 hours a day the way you grandparents, great-grandparents did? Because four guys got hanged fighting for the eight-hour day. I refer to the Chicago Haymarket, Haymarket thing, 1886. I, I'm playing fairly all the time. <laughs> and, and so they got hanged. They, were, they did it for you. And by this time, uh, the bus is just about coming up before he's looking out as though for a passing patrol car. You know, mm -hmm. because it finally gets on the car. I never saw them again, and I feel bad now and then I tell you about it. And yet, as I tell it, why do I feel good? <laughs> and I think it's like Huck Finn, Huck Finn on the raft, you know, and his pin, twinge of conscience. He's on with Jim, the escaped slave, and the slave chasers come along. They want to capture the fugitive slaves, and Huck's violating the law. And so the guy says, the guy around you seen, is the guy, is it white or black? And Huck says, he like, he's white, and they go away. Huck says, I felt so bad. You know, I did this terrible thing, but then why do I feel so good? That's right. So in a sense, <laughs> now these kids, mm -hmm. you're not going to blame them. What do they know about it? They don't, you see. You pick up, what, the Washington Post, the New York Times, the L.A. Times. You got a feature section. You got a sports section. You got a style entertainment section. You got a uh, business section, of course. Right. Is there a labor section? That's my joke. A labor, is there a labor page? Is there a labor right. column? So how would they know? And so that's, in a way, in a roundabout way, uh, replying to the guy who called. 
the absence of past so you can get away with almost anything. People in this book are a variety of people. Some are you and some are others. And there's Janora Johnson Dollinger. She's 83 years old, talking about union. Mm -hmm. And she's got a third pacemaker. That's part of the book, too, the infirmities, and but suddenly recalling certain moments. See, people of this age, minors, forget certain things, like where did I put my glasses or where did I put my keys, but they I remember. I do that all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know what they do remember? Right. Though, something else. Right. But they remember as an indelible experience right. years right. ago. That is an indelible experience for the country. And so Janora Johnson... She's on her third pacemaker, pills all around, and she's going to want to put her in a wheelchair. And she's trying. I'm saying, Janora, I'm going to name a year for you, 1937, Flint, Michigan. Mm. And Janora suddenly becomes this 23-year-old girl. She's 83, but on the top of the sound truck. Remember, this was Flint, Michigan. It was the first sit-down strike. Auto workers. Auto workers being organized in Flint in the Fisher Body One plant, General Mo And they're sitting in the plant 44 days and 44 nights. And meantime, they it's known all over the world, the case is now known, the cops, local and company, are throwing tear gas in to smoke the guys out. And so Janora, remember, she's in the bed with her pacemakers going crazy, talking as a 23-year-old girl on, on the roof of that sound truck going down Flint, calling out for the women to come out, cross the police lines, break some windows so the guys can breathe and remain in. And she says, and then one woman came out, and a cop grabbed her, and she walked right out of the sleeves of her coat. He was left holding the coat, and she <laughs> went through. Then another woman went through, and we won the strike. It was a wonderful moment. It was Mardi Gras. It was New Year's Day. It was everything that night in Flint. And then she falls back on the pillow, and she says, for crying out loud, it should be a better world than it is. Well, it's that sort of stuff, a memory that is vivid mm -hmm. but also important for us. Eric, in your car, you're on the air. Yeah. Um, my comment was uh, I, I was uh, listening to us uh, talking about the, the loss of the history of that and I, I tend to agree with him. I mean, we don't remember a lot of that stuff, and certainly a lot of us weren't even alive when a lot of these things came about, and we need to remember those things. But from a point of view of the union uh, debate right now, I'm not sure that a lot of this is really relevant to us. I mean, we don't have to worry about working eight, 18 hours a day because federal guidelines say that you have to pay overtime after a certain amount of time, and we don't have to worry about the plant problems as much because we have OSHA and those sorts of things. A lot of the things that the unions fought for and successfully won have now been dealt with outside the unions by federal or state agencies. I wish that were true. <laughs> I wish a lot of things have been won and are being lost. There's something called regression, too. When you mention OSHA, it is being gutted. I don't think there's any statistic on the amount of accidents that may be taking place now. Industrial plants are less, of course, because I mean, they're moved elsewhere where there are no unions, where in other societies they get two bucks a day. And so we have, you're assuming a great deal. I wish what you said were so, that it's all over with and done with. It's hardly begun. And it's easy to go, we've gone back all the way. As far as, let's talk about, since you mentioned that, earlier Mark talked about one of the first acts. I mentioned one of the first acts. Oh, no, one of the listeners said, one of the first acts of Reagan in, as president in 1980 was to break the air controller's strike. Now think about that strike and think about the knowledge of people. Four out of five Americans applauded Ronald Reagan for breaking the air controller's strike. I was one of them. 
What? What's that? You were one. I was, I was one of those people. One you, of those four out of five. Who who applauded? That's correct. That's I, I know. I assume you did. <laughs> that's why I'm. That's why I'm saying this. So what was the strike about? Was it about money? No. It was about rest and recreation. It was about health benefits, more mental health care, about more seasoning for air controllers, more rest. What do we read in the papers continuously at that time? Near misses, almost crashes, unseasoned air controllers, overworked. They were striking for you, for me, for passenger safety. You see, our non-knowledge of it, you see, the acceptance of it. Why did you applaud Ronald Reagan? Because I felt that if there was a serious problem like that, that it would be addressed internally. I didn't, I, I don't, I mean, I don't see any significant worsening of our air traffic control issue. In fact, uh, we have, statistically, air traffic is safer than any other form of transportation. No, I'm not talking about it. Of course it is. I'm just saying, I asked you a question. Obviously, I don't want to embarrass you. So you stumbled. There was no. You have no reply. I'm, it's I'm not, not sure your fault. You're question. a very intelligent man. I assume that, and you are. You're a very thoughtful person. I'm saying let's get at the core of things. For example, the words liberal, conservative. By the way, Mark, and you too, sir. Liberal to me are no meaning. Issues have a meaning. Right. I absolutely Jobs agree. Have a so issues are what count. You know what I call myself, if I may say so. I want to make a joke of it, a radical conservative. I'm a radical. I want to get to the (laughs) root of things. A quack doctor doesn't. He says a cancer is a sore, put the salve on it. But a real doctor gets to the core to prevent it. So a radical gets to the conservative. I want to conserve the First Amendment of the country, all Bill of Rights. I want to conserve the cleanness of water and air that's being polluted. And I want to conserve what little sanity we have left. So... See, these labels mean nothing, but what does count is getting at the root of things. It's interesting. You call yourself a radical conservative. Someone asked me today, what do I call myself? I don't know what to call myself anymore. I call myself a radical Democrat, R for getting to the root of things, and D because democracy means so much. So I, I understand exactly what you're saying when you use those words. Frank, throw in your question. The idea that things have so flip-flopped that now that uh, everyone breathes a sigh of relief that workers don't ask for a raise in, in a lemming-like fashion. I wanted to ask Mrs. Um, Mr. Turkle, you've seen the 30s liberalism and then the 50s flip-flop and then the 60s back to liberalism and then Reaganism. Does it get any easier uh, my, my agony of seeing things turn upside down, as it were, the ethos <laughs> oh, no, of America, well, the character know, of it? You know, as you get older, it's not that the mountains are getting higher, the valleys are getting deeper. <laughs> 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 you know, it's tough as you get older. I do. See, I have mixed feelings about this forthcoming new millennium. I, for myself, not for the young, but I, for myself, I do see that robotic aspect, that the, our imitation of the robot more and more and more. I see it in our daily life more and more, the uh, loss of passion. Passion is a, is a crazy word. It's a religious connotation. has everything connected with it. But I, I don't want to be too... I'm guardedly optimistic in a strange sort of mm-hmm. way. You see, I'm, I'm a yo-yo, I'm an emotional <laughs> yo-yo, because you, you, re, you wake up in the morning and you see a headline, you see the candy, say, oh, no, we're not going to make it. Then you run into people, certain people in communities who are doing this work. Boy, they're good. So there's hope. So I think there are these little... I never finished that thought before about a second, a second party. There should be a coalescence of all these groups, you know, whether they're environmental groups or peace groups or, 
or race relation, or whatever they are, the various groups, a coalescence. There isn't. They're different groups, and they're good. But we need some kind of coalition, I think. I hope you all are enjoying the special presentation of The Mark Steiner Show, a compilation of my 10 years of conversations with Studs Terkel. When we return, we take up our conversations and take them into the realm of film, music, theater, and humor. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to a very special edition of The Mark Steiner Show, my 10 years of conversations with Studs Turkle. When did you start this this world of um, living your life, taking people's stories, writing them down, I, listening to all, them? all accidental. I went to University of Chicago Law School years ago, the three most bleak years of my life. You got a law degree? Went, yeah, I flunked <laughs> the first bar, passed the second bar. The first bar were questions, <clears throat> yes or no. And I didn't know. I, <laughs> so I flunked. I was one of the 20% that flunked. Uh, the second bar was 50% flunked. Second, I passed that because the questions were essay questions. Yes, but on the other hand, no. Well, I'm good at that because I'm sort of a con artist. And so, was that. and so I passed the bar, but know nothing about it. Blocked out. Just blocked out completely. And then there was the Depression. We had a little hotel. My folks had my father died. My mother ran the hotel. Hotel is near the theater section. And so I'd get two tickets if I put a poster up on the, on the lobby of the hotel. Well, these guys never went to plays, but the press agent didn't care. So I became a playgoer, <laughs> aisle sitter, at the age of 13. Now, what, now you, but you also have a background in theater. I mean, you have, I mean, often an interviewer's love of a subject comes because of their, some part of them being embodied in that thing. Well, I, as in theater. I, as first, remember, it's called the spectator. <clears throat> right. And I've been a spectator all my life, really. And when I become a participant, it's accidentally. Well, a participant in, the, say, a, the peace movement or the civil rights. I've always been a spectator ever since the hotel. So I was in the balcony, you know, and seeing these plays or seeing these art movies. They were in the neighborhood, too. And But then I also now and then acted. I acted, and I became an actor. I was a gangster in radio soap operas in Chicago. <laughs> you know, the soap operas are all the same. Right. They were, and I was the same gangster. There were three gangsters, the bright one, the middle one, the dumb one. I was the dumb one. <laughs> no, it's true. You know, and each, the guiding light was about a minister. Woman in white was about a nurse. It was the same script. Mary Marlin suffered more than St. Teresa ever did, you know, Monday through Friday, courtesy of Oxidol. <laughs> And Helen Trent, subtitle, Can a Woman Find Love After 35? Tells you how long ago that was. You know. So I did that, and then I was in John Sayles. Eight men out. Eight men out, <clears throat> as the sports writer exposes the scandal. But also I had two lines in a Jane Fonda movie. Which one? Called, it's called The Dollmaker. Now, The Dollmaker is based on a novel in the South about a woman who, who comes north. Her husband has got a job in a defense plant during World War II in Detroit. But this is done in Chicago. The director of the movie was director of a show I did called Studs Place. She'd point out that I was one of the three Chicago shows. TV was new, 1950, a new medium, 6 to 10 at night. There were three programs out of Chicago considered by the great critic John Crosby's classics. Garraway at Large with Dave Garraway. Right. 
who was taken to New York became the very first face seen on TV in the daytime. Cooker Fran Ollie with that marvelous... Used to watch it as a kid all the time. And then a show of mine, short life, called Studs Place. All three were improvised. Well, he was the director of that, Dan Petrie, who was director of this Jane Fonda movie. So he says to her, we're going to do it in Chicago, and there are two lines here for a cab driver, and Studs is an old friend of mine. She says, I know him, because we shared the platform together a number of times during the Vietnam mm -hmm. protests. And so I got the lines, two lines. I have a conflict with a little boy, little, one of the youngest kids. It's funny. And they say, oh, that's great, Studs. Then now you drive out. Then you drive away, we fade out. I never sat behind a wheel in my life, so I said that. To That's them. right, you Don't can't you drive. Know I never sat behind a wheel in my life. You, it was it was a running gag in Studs Place. He said, "Oh my God, I forgot. Everybody drives cars. I choose him." <laughs> so guess what they did? What? They got a stand-in for me to drive. To drive the car. The car. <laughs> now I challenge you to name any any star: Paul Newman, Warren B. Name any star: Spencer Tracy, with two lines who had a stand-in. Never happened. That's my one claim to fame. I love it. Suddenly last summer, it's a Tennessee Williams play mm -hmm. about this girl who becomes lobotomized, modeled after his sister. And I saw Diana Barrymore play it, and she was wonderful. Now, Diana Barrymore at the time was the subject of scandal stuff. Uh, you know, the, she had men, booze, a rag called Confidential, like Enquirer wrote about her. Right. So all the interviewers asked her about that. And she came to accept that. So during my interview with her, I'm talking about this girl she played and the role of Maggie in Hot Tin Roof, about her acting and how it affected me. And she loved it, except at the end she says, haven't you forgotten something? I said, I forgot a lot. You didn't ask me the questions that all others asked me. She came to expect it. I says, you mean that person? It's none of my damn business. Good for you. It's none of the audience's damn business. It's what you do in your art that does it. And I, right. I remember puffing a cigar then. She starts crying. Next day, I get a box of cigars. She said, thanks. That was Indeed. sweet. One of the things in the introduction and one of the things through some of the people who talked about uh, had to do with technology and the change technology is oh, wrought boy. here. <clears throat> well, see, you're talking to a guy who's just learning to use a typewriter. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, no, I must confess, electric typewriter. It's big. Uh, see, the computer, to me, we we got to start from the beginning. There's a, vo there's a vocabulary, first of all, that I find very alien. To me, see, hardware, obviously, is hammer, nails, right. pants. Right. Software, pillowcases, right. Uh, right. bedspreads, Turkish right. towels. Now, I'm not going to put down the computer because I know it saves time. It gathers information, but... There's something, and this, I'm serious about this thing. It does, I think, remove us further and further from the human touch. I got to tell you a, a funny story, but it's a telling tale. Mm -hmm. Before, before we on, I get off the air, the, the, the Atlanta airport is a very modern airport, and it's got everything in its favor. And it's, as you leave the gate, it's got these trains that take you to the concourses that will lead ultimately to your destination. And as you enter the train, it's soft, it's silent. There's a voice overhead. And once upon a time was a human voice. <laughs> and the voice is saying, Concourse 1, you know, monotone, imitating the robot. Right. Concourse 1, Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston. Concourse 2, Chicago, Springfield. <laughs> Same voice. Just then the train's about to take off when a young couple rush in and they part the... The pneumatic doors are about to close. I'm uh -huh. doing an elevator to get in, and they just make it. And that voice, 
without losing a beat, says, because of late entry, we delayed 30 seconds. And everybody <laughs> looks at this young couple. They're going to crucify him, you know. For the, and just then, I have had a couple of drinks before boarding, which I have to, to steal myself. And so I call out, I put my, cut my hands on my, like a megaphone, a trinkle. George Orwell, your timer's come and gone. <laughs> now you're laughing. People laugh, but not on that train. <laughs> Ooh, he looked at me, so I joined the two, the three miscreants, right? And so I think, what, what's happening to us? Laughter disappears as well. Absolutely. As well as, so I see a little baby. I spot about a one-year-old baby on the lap of a mother seated. So I address the baby. And I say to the baby, and I hold my hand away over my mouth because, as I say, my breath might be a hundred proof, you know. <laughs> and and so, I say to, so I say to the baby, sir or madam, what is your opinion of the human species? And guess what the baby does? It busts out laughing. And so I say, great God almighty, there's hope, a human reaction. So in a sense, there is some hope. <laughs> <laughs> but, but there again, the machine. But you're not completely illuminate. Well, that's it. You raise a big point. I mean, the Luddites, as people know, were the agricultural workers uh, in the eight, 19th century who, 18th, 19th, who destroyed machines right. and put them out of work. I'm not a Luddite. Like, I believe in a washing machine. Good. Because I don't hate to see a woman or a guy hit this wet wash against the rock. <laughs> right. I believe in a refrigerator because it helps me keep my martini glass frozen. <laughs> Very important. You see? Very important. So I do... No, there is, of course, I'm not a complete Luddite. Um, Stud, it's really good to hear you again. And, and uh, I was, as I heard some other interviews you did recently, um, I was shocked to learn that uh, on just before this book came out that you actually had some major heart surgery. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> and this book was due out a year ago. Uh-huh. And I'm about to celebrate. It is about a year ago. Uh, the galleys were there, and my neighbor's having a cocktail party across the street from me. So I hopped down the stairs, minding my own business, when I do tripped, I do what was called a tour jeté. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't land on point, though. And it, was, it was not choreographed by Balanchine, <laughs> but by Bob Fosse, because it was jazzy. And for one second and a third, I was accelerated until my head hit the siding, ah. and I broke my neck. Oh. I broke my neck. And so I'm in the hospital, and it's very critical. <laughs> a guy in the 90s breaking his neck. This is about six weeks ago. <laughs> and I have, all, I have all kinds of dreams there and surreal adventures. I don't know if they were true or not. I can't tell when you're in a certain state. And then I'm just about to get out, and I got my cane with me that was left to me by Charlie Andrews, the only other survivor of Chicago-style TV. <laughs> we, were among the very, we were among the very first way back in 1949-1950. I'm about to get out when my cardiologist says to me, your aortic valve, your heart valve, is no good. It's gone. you got about a month to live. <laughs> I'm 93, says, oh, okay, forget it. I don't. But then my ego took over. My curiosity took over. What's the world going to be like, this world, when I'm gone? 
I'll never know. <laughs> so I said, let's do it. Okay. And, you know, that's my epitaph, by the way. Curiosity did not kill this cat. And there it is. I'm at the operating table, and I see this doctor with his rabbinical hat. You know, he's the <laughs> cardiac physician, surgeon. And there's the machinery. And that the last I remember is the machinery. And I wheeled out, and he looks down at me, the surgeon does, and he says, it's all over. And I say, you mean I'm dead? <laughs> I am officially dead. And he says, no, it worked out quite miraculously. You've got at least four more years. <laughs> I says, four more years? That sounds like Nixon. And the slogan, four more years. No, I don't want four more years. How about a couple? And so that's where I stand now. This is, this is a personal question, Studs. I mean, when you were on my show last time and I asked you the secret yeah. to some of your success, you said one of the things is you go home every day and you have a martini you keep in the fridge. Now, since your heart surgery, are you still drinking martinis? Ah, you're raising a sad question. <laughs> I'm sorry. I would, but except sitting next to me is my friend Pierre, <laughs> and he just shakes his head no. I have a scotch and soda, I but I love martinis. I'm going to sneak one when he's not around. A little, a little Bombay gin, a little vermouth, and mix it. Oh, I love martinis. I know you do, but I was just curious how you might. Even now I taste it, though it's not here. I've got a glass of, as W.C. Fields would say, water, ugh. <laughs> You know, say, water? Oh, my God. So I was really interested in, in one of the things I, I read all the things you've written and listened to your work on the radio and realizing that your career in radio began because of music. And that's where it started. Oh, of course. Well, yes. I, I began as a gangster in radio <laughs> soap operas. Chicago had more gangsters. Well, more soap operas than New York and Hollywood put together. And then I became a disc jockey before the word disc jockey entered our daily vocabulary. And I played these recordings. The key word of the subtitle is eclectic, Adventures of an Eclectic Disc Jockey. So I play Caruso. You know, Caruso was the record that all the immigrants, mm -hmm. 1905, 1906, as my parents were, bought Caruso records. Making little money, it didn't matter, but two bucks for a Caruso record, that's like 50 bucks today. You, but you, he did something, his voice. So I'd open with a Caruso record, let's say, uh, Oh Paradiso, or something like that. And then I go to Louis Armstrong's West End Blues, my favorite, in which he shows how his voice is his horn, his horn, his voice, as Earl Hines explores the piano as a trumpeter would. And then I go to Woody Guthrie, maybe, doing a Dust Bowl ballad. But he can't kill me, Lord, and he can't kill me. 
And in the book, I've got young Bob Dylan at the age of 20, might have him. So that's what I meant by being a disc jockey of eclectic taste, because I felt the audience, and it did, I turned out to be right. It was not a mass audience, but it was a definite cult following, I guess. But more and more, I'm realizing that they like a certain music they didn't understand before or thought was beyond them, as working people feel about classical music sometimes. And yet, Bach and Beethoven and Mozart wrote for them. That's the whole point of it. So that was what the book's about to some extent. Now, there are so many fascinating uh, people in this book and the, and the people you've interviewed over the years. And, but I, I'd like to kind of start with one that I was really especially moved by, especially given your history with this woman, and that's Mahalia Jackson. You, you, well, you, you, I mean, you, your careers are, are in many ways, and I didn't know this until I read the book, are just in, inextricably tied. I mean, through the, through the McCarthy era and the Red Scare and her role in that with you and, and people crediting you with discovering her only because you're white and she's black. I mean, the, the, it's, it's a fascinating story about you and Mahalia Jackson. I wish you'd share that with our listeners. Well, of course, I'd be delighted to. I'm so glad you brought that up. As a disc jockey... I played everything. <laughs> and so I'd play my hair. One day I'm in a record shop, and it's 78 records, RPM. Apollo is the label. And I hear this voice singing a song called Move On Up a Little Higher. And it's my head. I never heard a voice like that. I heard Paul Robeson's voice and mm-hmm. Marian Anderson's, but never this particular way with gospel music. And we can talk about gospel and spirituals and the difference. Yeah, I want to do that a little bit, yeah. So I started playing Mahalia records regularly. And so we picked this up. And I was a disc jockey. I played this record, Move On Up A Little Higher. I played Donnie Got To Know Mahalia, The Salem Baptist Church, where she was. And we, I played records a great deal. And to this day, uh, for example, Professor Thomas A. Dorsey, the great writer of gospel music, said, mm-hmm. gives me credit for Mahalia's being known to the world, of course, which is dead wrong. African-Americans... By the millions knew Mahalia, but the whites didn't. I was the white disc jockey who played her. And later on, after I was bounced during McCarthy days, I had a TV show back in those days, Chicago TV, mm-hmm. had Cooper, Fran, and Ollie, a wonderful program with Bert Hilstrom, sure. Dave Garraway, first face ever seen on daytime TV, and my show, Studs Place. But I had a big mouth. I spoke out during the Cold War in favor of the anti-fascist refugee committee or civil rights, and so I got bounced. In the meantime, Mahalia is known throughout the world now, and she's given an, an hour-long program on the network, CBS. She'll do it on one condition, that I am the host. They trembled at first, but finally agreed, and we do the program as a live audience, too, about 400 people. Mm-hmm. And during one of the performances, a dress rehearsal, audience is about to come in, when a guy comes in from New York, 
and he says, uh, you got to sign this thing. He's very polite. I look at it and says, are you, are you, have a bin, et cetera? I say, I don't, I don't believe in this junk. I am an American. I know I am. I don't have to sign it. I am. I was influenced then by the Quakers, the American friends who were fantastic in everything. And I believe my yay is my yay is my nay is my nay. <laughs> so we're in an argument. Uh-huh. And Mahalia hears this argument on her way to the piano to rehearse with Mildred Falls, her accompanist. She says, is that what I think it is, baby? I says, yeah, because she knew all about me and the troubles I was in. In fact, she said to me once, Studs, you got such a big mouth, you should have been a preacher. <laughs> and so she says, you're going to sign that. Huh? I says, no, I'm not going to sign it, Mahalia. And this guy says, you got to. No. Finally, Mahalia says, look, you tell Mr. Big, she says to this guy who's kind of polite, she says, you tell him if they fire Studs Turkle to find another Mahalia Jackson. And you know what happened? Nothing happened. She said no to the officials. Nobody said no. So I value the memory of Mahalia for saying no. And that's what Americans should say. That's their duty. That's their right as citizen democracy to say bugger off to somebody <laughs> who, for example, is uh, whatever it is. So in any event, that's the Mahalia story. And it's a great story because, I mean, it, it, I think it puts a whole other level to Mahalia Jackson most people don't know about. They know her as this gospel and spiritual singer, but not, I mean, the courage she had in the face of that kind of oppression and in the face of what you were facing for her to stand up like that and also threaten her own career. is It just adds a whole other layer to who this woman was. Les, in Timonium, you are on the air. I just wanted the honor of talking to you. Uh, you, to me, are one of the classical liberals in the best sense of the word, and therefore you're a hero of mine. I would like you to comment on one serious subject, and that is, I, I despair of the future. I wonder what your outlook, given this right-wing takeover of America, I wonder what your outlook is on it. The last book was called Hope Dies Last. It came from this farm worker woman, named was Jessie de la Cruz. She had worked with Cesar Chavez in founding the farm workers, and she was retired. She's in a mobile home, and we're talking, and she says that at times, the very bleak, we had a Spanish phrase, Esperanza muera al ultimo, hope dies last. So you ask how I feel. I have to have hope. And even though you say the takeover, not quite. Almost, but now we see polls, ordinary polls, not liberal polls, they're called showing us that less and less and less people believe what the big boys are doing there. Less and less and more and more are starting to question. So there's the hope. It has to be. Without hope, there's no point to life. And music is one what more hopeful thing than Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, that last movement, All Men Shall Brothers Be. Well, what more hopeful than an opera like Mozart's Marriage of Figaro? And what more hopeful than Bach as he's played by the modern jazz quartet? Mm-hmm. Modern jazz quartet playing Bach. And they're playing Yesu, Joy of Man's Desiring. Johann Sebastian Bach would have loved that because he improvised. 
And they wrote, and so that's the point about ordinary people, so-called, a phrase I don't like because it's kind of patronizing, but non-celebrated. And it's in them, I think, the hope is. I feel it. But we all have to take part. The hope is if we say no, as Mahalia said no, that's it. It's got to be it. If ever there were time for it, it's now. You got me making a speech now. Have you ever played an instrument? No. People ask me, I wish I did. No, I wish I had played a piano. I had asthma as a kid. Right. And asthma, asthma. And so as a kid, I, I used to be home a lot, and I'd hear my father brought home a Caruso record. I hear Caruso's voice, and it's more for me than any medication possibly could. There was something about it that did it, you know. That's what music can do. Is that a true story about you and, and, and Caruso and, and, uh, and, and your asthma and, and what that did oh, for yeah. your breathing? Oh, that's very true. Is it? I may give it too much credit. <laughs> maybe, maybe there was a cough syrup of some sort. <laughs> but it did play a role, no question, in making me feel better, making anybody feel better. That's the point. When you sit down at, at, at home and put on music, I mean, what, what, what's the music that moves you now the most? I have to tell you a secret. I'm deaf, you know. I knew that, <laughs> I yeah. got the earphones on, so I hardly hear music. Here's the irony. The exquisite punishment visited upon me. Uh -huh. I am the listener who listens carefully, and yet I'm deaf. Right. <laughs> and so I hardly hear, but I would say you can't go wrong with Mozart. Christina in Pasadena, you're on the air. Oh, hello. Hi. Hi. Um, I just wanted to tell you, Mr. Turkle, it's so great hearing you talk. Uh, my father died three years ago, and you remind me so much of him. He used to talk to me about politics, and um, I was wondering if I could adopt you. <laughs> well, anytime. <laughs> anytime. Are you rich? No. By all means, adopt me, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Take care, Christina. Thanks so much. The Mark Steiner Show is a production of the Center for Emerging Media. Our lead producer is Calvin Perry. Our editing producer is Ali Post. Our engineer is Andrea Melton. Our theme music is by Wall Matthews of Clean Cuts. Please send me your thoughts about today's program to talkatsteinershow.org. To podcast the Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends, visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. Now, for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, The Voice of the Community, I'm Mark Steiner. Stay cool in this heat. Take care and have a great weekend. Talk to you all Monday. <laughs>